Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Uh, this morning, I want to start by taking you back. I, sometimes I feel like I do this a lot, right? I take us back all the way to the beginning of time. And so this morning, I want to start by taking us back to the beginning of human history. You know, here's the beginning of human history. God had just created the world. He created uh, you know, the sky, the earth. He created life. He created plants. He created vegetation. And uh, he created the animals. And he created, among that life, one single guy. And it didn't take God very long. And in Genesis 2.18, he looked down and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And how many know that's still true today, right? It's not good for men to be alone, especially a single guy to be alone. Because if you leave a guy alone for a long enough time, something's going to get broken or he's going to hurt himself, right? And God, God, God was the first one to discover this. Like, oh my gosh, it is not good for this person to be alone. We've got to do something about this stat. You know, I think about that in our own lives because I don't know about what it is about guys, but it's just kind of baked into our DNA of who we are. Um, you know, just a, a quick story to illustrate that. My son, uh, Isaiah, when he was like 18 months old, um, Devin and I were in Sioux Falls, we in our house. And you know, as toddlers, there's like a, a certain num- amount of noise that you just kind of come to expect with toddlers, and you, it's just kind of there in the background all of the time. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about this. We had a, a young couple over, and they had a little girl, and she was, like, screaming with this high-pitched scream. And I was like, Ugh. And they're just, and, like, they just kept going on conversation. Like, they just, they, they, like, there's a filter God gives you when you're a parent of a toddler to just tune that stuff out, right? But you become used to, like, this low hum. And so uh, we were sitting there one day, and, um, you know, we were just doing our thing. I think we were cleaning our room or in our room or something, and the boys were playing, and the low hum was going, and... You know, everything was fine. And, you know, as toddler parents, the thing that you don't, you don't fear the noise, you fear the silence, right? When it gets quiet, it's like a reverse alarm. You know, like an alarm goes off when something's wrong and it's loud. And like a, a toddler alarm is like, it's quiet. Like, whoa. And then Devin, Devin like all of a sudden her, her, her mom sense peaked up and she's like, I got to go see what Isaiah's doing. So she went out and like, you know, seconds later, she's like, Jared, come in here and see what your son is doing. Well, in our kitchen... We had a cabinet. Our, our boys, all of our kids actually love cliff bars. To this day, they still love cliff bars. And we kept cliff bars up high in the cabinet because if we didn't, they would just gorge themselves on cliff bars. And so Isaiah, being 18 months old, knew exactly where the cliff bars were at. So I kid you not, this kid, he is 18 months, like he's only been walking for six. He had a, like a chair and a stool and something else. He had three different things he had piled and made this makeshift little tower, and he was climbing his way up. He was on the second level, ready to go get his cliff bar. And you look at something like that, and you're like, you just leave guys long enough, they're going to do something stupid. That's just how it is. You know, I was doing a project just recently. At a, I was installing a 75-inch TV, and, you know, the flat screen TVs are way less heavy than they used to be, but there's, I mean, 75-inch TV still got some weight to it, and it's big, and it's awkward, and... Um, I had just finished putting the mount up, and there's really nobody around to help me with this particular project, and um, I, it was six feet up in the air, so I knew I, I couldn't just do it from the ground. I had to, like, I had to get up on a ladder. The only ladder I had was a four-foot rickety um, aluminum ladder, and instead of like good sense kicking in and saying, that's really stupid, a lot of things could go wrong, I thought, I still got it. <laughs> right? So I climbed up on the ladder, and, and I'll just... Cut a long story short, it did not go well. 
the TV did not get mounted. The mount came off the wall. There was tons of scratches on the sheetrock, which later had to be repaired. The, uh, the TV actually kind of fell, and I actually caught it. In the process, I hurt my back. And so the whole day, I just kept replaying that scenario in my head, thinking, how stupid can one person be? You know, like, how dumb? How did you think you were going to do this by yourself? So God knew it. He saw it and said, hey, it is not good for a man to be alone. So he had a solution. He created a partner, a helper to help him. Did he create another guy to help him? No. That would have been even worse because when you get multiple guys together, the stupidity just multiplies, right? So he looked down and he said, we got to help this guy out. And he gave him a woman. And then do you know what God did? He breathed a huge sigh of relief because he knew that he didn't have to worry about Adam's safety for the rest of his life because she was going to keep him busy with tasks for the rest of his life. So... It was good. It was good. So, in all seriousness, it was not good for this guy to be alone. There was something, there's something about the way that we are created that we are meant to be in relationship with each other. Our DNA, our very makeup, requires interactions with other human beings. You know, think about this. What is the worst punishment that we dole out as a society? What's the worst punishment in jail that you can get? I mean, beyond the death penalty. Solitary confinement, right? And in some ways, solitary confinement almost in some ways is worse, worse than the death penalty. In fact, um, I, there was an article I was just reading where there's a jail down south and they were actually petitioning for, for it to be cruel and unusual punishment because some of these people in this jail were left 22, 23 hours a day in solitary confinement for months on end. And uh, it was really having its toll on them. So our DNA just, you know, we're just meant to be in relationship and time in isolation for us with little to no meaningful human contact is incredibly detrimental to our well-being. In fact, I came across a BBC article and it describes this experiment they did in the 1960s in which a group of researchers at McGill University Medical Center in Montreal paid volunteers to spend days or weeks by themselves in a soundproof cubicle deprived of any, and not any, but most all human contact. And I want to read for you this article and the results that they found. It says this, After only a few hours, the students became acutely restless. They started to crave stimulation. See, most of these were like college students that they paid to do this. Um, Talking, singing, or reciting poetry to themselves to break the monotony. Later, many of them became anxious or highly emotional. Their mental performance suffered too, struggling with arithmetic and word association tests. But the most alarming effects were the hallucinations. They would start with points of light, lines or shapes, even evolving into bizarre scenes such as squirrels marching with sacks over their shoulders or uh, in processions or processions of eyeglasses filing down the streets. They had no control over what they saw. One man saw dogs, the other man saw babies. Some of them experienced sound hallucinations as well. A music box or a choir, for instance. Others imagined sensations of touch. One man had this sense that he had been shot in the arm by pellets fired from guns. Another reaching, reached out to touch a doorknob and felt an electric shock. The researchers had hoped to observe their subject for over several weeks, but the, the trial was cut short because they became too distressed to carry on. Few lasted beyond two days, and none lasted as long as a week. Their mental states declined at a rapid pace. One of the scientists went on to say that without social interaction, the subjects have no way to test the appropriateness of their emotions or their fantastical thinking. So in other words, what he was saying was they don't have a, they don't have a way to bounce their crazy thoughts off people to see if it's real or not, if it's reality, um, because they don't have anybody to talk to. They're isolated by themselves. So we find from this, I thought this article was fascinating, and I think what it told me about relationships is that we are so wired for relationships, we are so needy for relationships 
that they literally, relationships with other people literally define reality for us. Literally defines reality. That's how essential relationships are. And I, as I read that article, I'm like, relationships are essential as, to us as, as water and as air. I mean, we can survive maybe physically, but mentally we lose it if we don't have relationship. That's how, that's how powerful relationships are in our life. You know, it makes me think a little bit, I don't know if you ever watched the Red Green show. Um, it was a PBS show about just a bunch of rednecks from Canada. And uh, one of the guys that was a recurring character is they had this guy who was out at one of those fire watchtowers, and he would come on the show once in a while. And the guy was always a half bubble off because he spent all this time out there with nobody else but himself, right? So there's this thing that's, that's built into us that we have to be in relationship with each other. God saw that it wasn't good for the man to be alone, and so he created woman to be with him. And ever since then, we've been navigating this world of relationships, haven't we? And it got me thinking a little bit as I was contemplating this idea of relationships and the necessity of it. And, and really, this is one of the crux things that started myself down this rabbit hole of relationships is um, just what's happened to our relationships in the last two years. I mean, COVID has really changed the way that we interact with people. And I started thinking back to the beginning of COVID, and I hadn't thought about this for a long time, and I forgot some of what, you, what happened at the beginning of COVID. I mean, you know, we were shut away from each other for, for months, for like three months, we ceased going to school, some of us into our workplaces, restaurants, even church was shut down for a little while. And, and even when we got back together, then we had to like maintain this distance and we had masks on. And I remember the awkwardness of like, you know, wanting to go hug somebody but not knowing if it was okay with them and, you know, making in, in like shaking hands. But some people didn't want to shake hands, they wanted to do fist bumps because they didn't want to spread germs. And uh, it was an awkward, weird time in, in that in that couple of years, especially right at the beginning. And even though life has, you know, really returned pretty much to normal in, in most ways, um, I think it took a toll on our relationships. I really do. I mean, during the pandemic, statistics tell us there was unprecedented rises in anxiety and depression, PTSD. Couples contemplating divorce went up by 34% over the previous year, over 2019 from 2020. Domestic violence increased during that time. So I feel like my sense is there's a couple of lasting impacts, and I think one of the lasting impacts, or maybe not lasting, lasting, but at least for in the short term, I think it's turned us into more of an introverted society than we've ever been before. I really do. Because when we're forced to spend that time alone, we kind of, that becomes our habit and our rhythm of life. And another one of the lasting uh, effects that I think isn't going away anytime soon is that we have this ability to work remotely now, which we've never had before. And I, you know, I, I see the benefit to it. I really do. I mean, you don't have to commute. You can stay in your pajamas all day. You can work from wherever you want to in the world, literally, most of the time. I mean, there's some great advantages to it. I've been trying to figure out how I can do it as a pastor, but Pastor Barry tells me that doesn't really work that way. So <laughs> pray for me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but even though there's all those benefits, and I totally understand it, I think it's awesome. I love that people can go to different places that they maybe never would be able to live and live there and work. I think that's awesome. But there is something that we miss because we can just stay home all day in our pajamas by ourselves. We miss the interaction that comes with people whose viewpoints we're not used to hearing or um, you know, being able to just interact with people. And I know there's Zoom calls, but they're not quite the same thing because when you're on a Zoom call, it's pretty much all business. But you know, when you're in an office, you find yourselves in the break room together just talking about life and just interacting with people. And um, there's just there's something that we miss, I think, um, when we don't have that. And that carries over to the kingdom of God and the people of God as well. In fact, we tell our life group leaders when we're training them, 
um, that in the New Testament, there are literally 30 commands that you cannot fulfill unless you are in relationship with other believers. Now, I want to talk to our online audience this morning. Um, I'm so glad you're with us, and I'm so glad you're joining us. And don't take this as a knock on you at all. We just want you to be in relationship with believers, and you can do that right where you're at. But you don't have to physically be here because we know some of you can't physically ever make it here, which is fine with us. But you got to be in relationship with other believers because there are literally 30 things that you cannot obey in the New Testament unless you're in relationship with other believers. So we have to have these relationships. But the good news is this. God didn't leave us to figure these relationships out on ourselves because let's, let's face it, they are tricky, right? Relationships, whether it's relationship between a husband and a wife, relationship between friends, between people you work with or you work for, uh, between teachers and students. I mean, there are some tricky relationships are hard. But God didn't leave us to just figure it out. He gave us a roadmap on how to figure this thing out. And so um, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture this morning, and it's one that is very famous. In fact, if you've never even went to church before, you probably know about this passage of Scripture. It's the Ten Commandments. And so the Ten Commandments are found in Exodus 20. And uh, what's interesting about the Ten Commandments over all the other Scripture in the Bible is that the Ten Commandments, even though the other Scripture is inspired by God and it's God-breathed, People, human beings like you and I, wrote the Bible. They sat down and so their personalities and their styles come across, but they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We consider it authoritative because it is. It's God's word and truth. However, the Ten Commandments are unique because God literally wrote them with his hand. He literally wrote them on tablets and gave them to Moses. Now, Moses got mad and threw those down, and there's new ones. But these are actually God's very words written by his own hand. So the Ten Commandments are a little bit unique and very authoritative, because of that. So this morning, before we jump into that, I want to set the scene for you about what's happening while these Ten Commandments were given. The uh, Israelite nation, the Hebrews at this time, were taken out of captivity and, and slavery in Egypt where they were oppressed for about 400 years. God took them into the desert and he was bringing them to this place called the Promised Land, this new land he had for them. He wanted to make them into a country, into a nation. But in order to do that, he had to establish laws. And so that's where the Ten Commandments come in. He took him into the desert to establish a way of worship and a way of life, and he established these commandments. And these Ten Commandments, there, there was a lot of commandments actually given, but we've, these Ten Commandments are like kind of the foundational stones of the law. And the first four of them are vertical commandments. They're about us and our relationship with God, and the next six were horizontal relationship commandments, so relationships about each other. So he gave us this roadmap, and this morning I want to take that ro this roadmap that God gave us in the Ten Commandments. We're not going to look at all six, but we're going to look at four of the relational commandments and use it as a way to look at and understand what does it mean to have a real relationship. That's why I titled the message today, Real Relationships, okay? And I'm going to do something I haven't done for a long time and use an acrostic, okay? Um, pastors used to do this all the time. I haven't done it for a long time, and I don't know, just felt like I should. So, uh, the first letter that we're going to look at today in the word real, R-E-A-L, is R. And R stands for respect. Respect. Exodus 20.12, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the, the land the Lord is giving you. Honor. And this honor, and as we look at these commands, it's, we're not just going to take these commands at face value, but we're going to look at the principles behind this command. What's the principle behind honoring your father and mother? Well, I mean, we can take it at face value, and it's exactly that. Kids, honor your parents, right? What does honor mean? To respect them, to esteem them, to listen to them, you know, in some cases to obey them. Um, so we honor our father and mother, but let's take it beyond the scope of our parents, right? Let's take it beyond the scope. Let's apply it to every single relationship 
Honor is something that we are to give in relationship. Let's look at Romans 13, 6. This is way, for, way removed from the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. And Paul, the apostle, says this. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full-time governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So he says, if there's honor due, then give honor. Okay, usually we don't have a hard time with that because if someone deserves honor, we're, you know, most, we're willing to give honor. But what about those people we don't think deserve honor in our lives? What are we supposed to do with them? Well, the context of the verse that I just read to you in Romans chapter 13, Paul was talking before that about obeying and respecting the authorities that were over you. Who was he talking to? He was talking to, uh, he was talking to his people, the Jews. And he was talking to the Romans as well, but he was talking to people in the Roman world who the majority of them were ruled by Romans. They were ruled by an oppressive, authoritarian uh, government system. And so he says, give honor to where honors do. Well, if you look at that, for most Jews, like, they didn't want to honor the Romans because the Romans came and invaded their land and, and took, their, you know, took their resources and all these things. But he's saying, give honor where honor is due. And he said, well, they don't have honor isn't due there. Well, let me let you in on a little secret this morning. Honor doesn't have to be earned to be given. You can give honor to anybody at any place without them earning it, right? You can honor a position without necessarily honoring the individual that's there. So this, this really hits home when you start talking about bosses or authorities that are placed over you or even in your marriage relationships or student-teacher relationships, giving honor in those times and giving honor to those people is something that maybe they didn't earn. And sometimes I know it's very hard to give honor to those people because they've abused their positions of authority. And not just the people, but the people in the positions abuse their authority. That happens in the government. That happens with teachers. That happens in the church. You know, these people who are in these in these, uh, uh, these positions, abuse their authority. And so it's really hard to bring honor, give honor in those positions. But that doesn't, that doesn't stop the word of God from being true and saying give honor where honors do. I think a great example of this is when you look at the story of King David in the Old Testament. King David was one of the first kings of Israel when they finally got into their new land that God was taking them to. They, uh, they had a period of time where they were ruled by these people called the judges, where God would just kind of bring up people to deliver them when armies would oppress them. But then they got a king. They had a king named Saul, their first king. And he started out really good, turned really bad. And then they had another king that came after him called David. But, but David worked for Saul. And David was in Saul's court and in his army. And there was several periods of time and several instances where Saul took a spear and tried to kill David. In fact, he was in a, time, he was in a place one time where he took his entire army, Saul did, and David had a, a, a small band of like four or 500 guys, and Saul came after them, was coming after him, just relentlessly coming after David to try to kill him because he was jealous of David. And so there's a, a particular time where there was a cave that David's men were hiding way in the back, and Saul went in. Because he was chasing David, he went in to go to the bathroom, and, and uh, David's men said, hey, David, David. Hey. I'm sure it's, they were probably whispering because Saul was in the cave, right? They're like, hey, David, this is your time. God's given him into your hand. Go ahead and kill him. This is your time. And so David crept up on him. He said, I'm not going to kill him, but he, he cut a piece of his robe off. And so Saul went out, of the, went out of the cave, not knowing what had happened, not understanding that his life had just been spared by David. And David was so guilt-stricken by what he had done, by cutting off just a corner 
of his robe that he felt like he had to repent. And he went out to Saul and he confronted Saul after that. But, but here's, here's what's crazy about that. David had every right to kill Saul. David had already been anointed king at this point in time. And God had already told him through the prophet Samuel, you will be king. And this guy was trying to kill him. I mean, it could have been self-defense. There's 2,000 ways he could have sliced that and everything would have been okay for David. But he chose honor. He honored Saul because I, he said, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. I'm going to honor him. And so he did. And you know what God called him? He called him a man after his own heart. A man after God's own heart. The only person in Scripture that's called a man after God's own heart. Why? I believe in part because of the way that he presented himself, his character, the way he honored um, Saul in those times. And really, he honored God. So even if you have a hard time honoring a position or a person, you can still honor God and make that your sacrifice when you're honoring. How do, how, then the question, I guess, is, is you know, how, do you, how do you honor those people? How, how do you... How do you do this on a regular basis? What does that look like? Well, there's a lot of ways to honor people, but you know, what don't you do? Don't, don't talk about them behind their back. Don't talk about your boss. Don't talk about your kids in a dishonoring way or your spouse in a dishonoring way. You know, don't have contempt for the people that God's placed over you, even though you may not agree with everything that they do. Have honor in your relationships. So that's R, respect. E, what does E stand for? E stands for energize. Uh, Exodus 20.13, you shall not murder, okay? Is there anybody in this room who has not obeyed this commandment? Awesome, good. Security team, we're good, all right? <laughs> no, we shall not murder. Well, what, what, what does this have to do with relationships other than if you kill someone, it's not going to be a very good relationship that you have with them, right? What, is, what does murder have to do with relationships? Well, let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5.11 and see what that has to say. Therefore, this is Paul again, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. So he says what? He says encourage one another, build each other up, energize one another in relationships. Be life-giving in your relationships and not life-taking in your relationships. Because what is murder? Murder is taking life, right? Let's not, li let's not take life in our relationships, but let's be people who give life in our relationships. Because let's be honest, I don't know. Have you ever spent time with someone who is a, a life-draining person in relationship or a life-sucker when it comes to relationship? The kind of person who complains about everything and anything? You know, you find them over on the Indianola Community Facebook page. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about. That's where everybody goes to complain, right? People that sit, and when you sit down, you talk with them, they talk about their aches and their pains, how bad the weather is, how the country is going down the tubes how their kids are horrible or their kids never call them and they never talk to them and they can take any situation and they can turn it around to be something that's a complaint. And you leave those conversations and maybe you went into those conversations energized and you leave just feeling bleh, you know, because they rub off on you, right? Their negativity just rubs off on you. And uh, I don't know about you, but I, I, when I'm in conversations with people like that, I just cannot wait to get out of there. I just want to, the only thing I can think about is I just, I want to be out of this conversation. I don't want to sit and listen to this. I'm just trying to find a way to get off the phone or get out the door or whatever it happens to be because they're life suck, there's life-sucking people like that. Do you love spending time with that person? They eventually end up alone, right? Because nobody likes to sit and listen to them. And let me tell you this this morning, if you're one of those people that's sitting in here and you're like, I have never met an individual like that in my life, then you might be that person, okay? <laughs> Just something to think about. And don't get me wrong this morning, I'm not saying that there isn't times in life that you need to vent, because there are times in life 
when you need to vent. And I'm not saying you don't need to be real about what you're going through because please be real. You know, as Christians, I think we should be as real as it can be. Look at the Psalms. I mean, there's very real emotions happening and very hard things that are happening in Psalms. But um, so I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't vent once in a while. That, that's perfectly fine. But, but I will say this, even in that, even in those hard times that you go through, there is a way of communicating those things and going through those things that can even energize people. And I'll give you a case in point. There's a guy who has passed away since, but he used to go to this church. His name was Mike Forbes. And he had a degenerative lung disease uh, that was terminal. And he knew he was going to die. And we prayed for him, you know, many times. And he, down at these altars, you know, and we would sing that song, It's Your Breath in My Lungs. And it was like every time he was here, we'd sing that song. And, you know, we, we, were, we knew that God was going to do something. And he did. He took him home, you know. He gave him his ultimate healing. But we never saw it on this earth. And that never got Mike down. At least, I never saw it. Because I would go into conversations with Mike, and number one, Mike was a talker. But number two, I would leave conversations with Mike, and I was energized every time I was energized. I looked forward to conversations with this guy who was going through death and knew he was going to die. Why? Because he loved Jesus. Because he had something good to say. He always, I left those conversations, and I always felt more uplifted after leaving those conversations, even though the things he talked about were hard things. So even though you're going through hard things, that doesn't necessarily even mean, you, even in your venting, you can be life-giving, you can be energizing if you're doing it the right way and if you're in the right state of heart and right state of mind. And how do you do that? How do you be, how do you be a life-giver? What does that mean to be a, a, an energizer in conversation? Well, let me, um, let me just tell you a story about someone that I just love listening to. I could sit down and I could listen to Joe Bedwell speak on topics for hours. I'm not kidding. I, I, I am fascinated by the things that Joe learns. And he's always on to some different topic every time I talk to him. So it's never the same thing. It's always different. Um, and, you know, there's like this one time he started telling me about sleep. And I think I might have asked him because I kind of heard around the grapevine that Joe was in like learning about how, like sleep. And so I started talking about sleep and it's particularly caffeine and how caffeine affects our sleep. And for Joe, like his mind doesn't work the way that mine does. I see something like a car and I'm like, Great, the car runs. I can take it and go places. Joe looks at a car and says, how do those wheels turn? How do those brakes work? How does internal combustion work? Like his mind is like, he wants to know the, the, the in-depth reasons why things happen. And so I just, I, I'm, I just sit and I listen to him. And I'm just like, ah. Oh. And so he's talking about sleep and he's talking about caffeine. And he's talking about how much time you should let lapse before the last time you have caffeine to the last time you go to bed. And he's like, you can even go to sleep and you can go to sleep both having caffeine right before you go to sleep, but you're not going to sleep as well. And he's like, have you ever noticed that when you have caffeine and you go to sleep, you just don't rest as well? And I'm like, yeah, 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 totally. I mean, like if Joe was selling something, I was in, you know? Um, and then he, then he started telling me about like neuroreceptors and what caffeine does to neuroreceptors to block the fact that you don't feel, I, it's just, I'm fascinated. And then one time, he, one of his hobbies is cooking, and so Joe's talking to me about cooking. And uh, I, I like cooking, I like recipes, I even like messing around with different recipes, but he knows like the why things work. He's talking about brining a chicken for 20 minutes, and I'm just there, you know? <laughs> like, he's telling me about how the, like, the, the vinegar and how the acids in the brine actually break down the muscle in the chicken and make it tender, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is good, you know? And then he tells me about garlic and, and like the difference between slicing garlic and crushing garlic and processing garlic and how it makes the flavor and the aroma of the garlic come out in different ways. And I'm just fascinated by what he has to say. So Joe, you better book some appointments because you're going to have some good conversations in the next few days. 
And Joe's, oh, and, and why is it like that? Why is Joe like that? Because Joe is always listening to podcasts. He's always reading books. He's always watching these documentaries that are buried deep in the recesses of Netflix. And he always has something really interesting to say because he's getting input from all these sources and this input comes out. And to me, it's fascinating. In our relationships, if we are inputting Jesus into our lives, the way that Joe inputs information, we're going to have something to say. If we're inputting the Holy Spirit into our lives, if he's filling us up to the top, we are going to naturally overflow onto the people that are around us. And we are going to be energizing whether we try to or not. Whether through what we say or the way that we live our lives in relationship, we will energize people when we spend time with our Father. It's just a natural overflow. So how do you be a life energizer? You get time with the Holy Spirit. You let him fill you up. And I trust you, people are, trust me, people are going to want to spend time with you and you're going to energize in relationships. So respect, energize, A stands for attach. Attaches, you shall not commit adultery, okay? Probably a lot of us are familiar with this verse. This verse is telling us that in relationship, specifically marriage relationship, we need to stay true to the commitments that we made to one another, to be faithful to our spouse, right? But let's apply that faithfulness across relationships. And, uh, you know, when you're in a relationship with someone, to, uh, what does it mean to remain faithful? Well, some people, you have different levels of relationship, right? Some people you have more commitment to, you have more to be faithful to. Some people you know less and you have less of a commitment. But there's an element of faithfulness to, I think, every, especially when it comes to believers, there's an element of faithfulness to that. And I think what saddens me the most, especially among believers, is that there's, there's one kind of glaring issue that comes up between believers and when it comes up, um, that faithfulness sometimes is kind of tossed to the wayside. And people tend to sometimes abandon relationships because it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter. Um, it, it, as long as you are breathing and you, you know another person, it's, it's almost inevitable that there's going to be some kind of conflict between the two of you, right? Because it, you are different people with different personalities, you were raised differently, you have different viewpoints, and so any person that you come into relationship with, it's almost inevitable that there is going to be some kind of conflict that arises, and this is one of the biggest issues I see among believers specifically, and I feel like they don't want to be faithful by doing the hard work of walking through conflict and resolving conflict, but they want to go the other way, and they just want to say, you know what, maybe it's just easier if I just don't interact with that person. Maybe it's just easier if I just kind of put them by the wayside and forget about it. Conflict is inevitable, but it doesn't have to be fatal. In fact, if you manage conflict correctly, it will be, you'll have a stronger relationship than you did before the conflict arose. Matthew 18, Jesus thought it was, so, it was important enough that we know how to manage conflict that he gave us a model in Matthew 18. And I'm not going to read that for you this morning, but you can go and you can look at that if you want to later. But he talked about a way of doing conflict because it was important enough to Jesus. And he knew that we were going to deal with it. Because he knew that his people are different, and we were not created to be the same. We were created to be, you know, Pastor Barry says it all the time, it's, it's, not, it's not uniformity, it's unity. We were meant not to be the same, we were meant to all be different, but yet to work in conjunction with each other, and that means navigating conflict from time to time, right? In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, Jesus placed a priority on relationship and reconciliation in relationship, especially amongst the believers. Here's what it says. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave that gift at the front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Restoration of relationship was so important, 
Jesus said in this passage, and now I'm taking this a little bit out of context, but I'll, I'll come back around. It was so important that he said, stop worshiping. Stop. Go and reconcile first. That's how important it was for him that believers be reconciled to each other. Stop worshiping and go be reconciled. Now, don't get me wrong. and don't, don't, This isn't a pattern where Jesus says, you know, you have to be reconciled. Reconciliation is more important than all of your worship to me. That's not true. But he was saying, your heart needs to be in the right place so that you can come before me and worship. And if it's not in the right place, if you have issues with another believer that you have not resolved, that needs to get taken care of so your heart can be ready to worship me. Be faithful in your relationships. The hard work of conflict is incredibly holy work. And it's work that is not, it's not worth abandoning a relationship because you have an issue. Because in this day and age, everybody gets offended, and we're so worried about offending people. But in the, in the body of Jesus Christ, we were meant to be iron that sharpens iron. We were meant to hold each other accountable, and we were meant to call each other out once in a while on our stuff. That's who we were meant to be. Why? Because it makes us better. Society can be offended all they want, and they can tiptoe around issues all they want, and they can just keep, continue to go the direction they're going, which isn't a good direction. But we, as believers, we're going to be healthy and we're going to be strong because we're going to engage in conflict with one another, right? That sounds weird, doesn't it? But that's the truth this morning. So that's A, attach. L, laud. Everybody say laud. I keep wanting to say loud. It's laud. Laud. How many know what the word laud means? Yeah, Cody, of course you do. All right. Yeah, Cody knows. Nobody else does. Lord, I didn't know what it really meant either, but I want to get to it in a second, and I'll, I'll tell you what it means. But I want to read the verse first. Exodus 20, verse 17 says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So, coveting. This verse tells us not to covet other people's stuff. What does covet mean? Okay, I'm going to throw these words out that we don't use very often. What does covet mean? The word covet here in the Greek, or in the, not in the Greek, but in the Hebrew, which it was written, means to desire greatly. So don't greatly desire, don't lust after, and I'm not talking necessarily in a sexual way, but don't lust after other people's stuff. Okay, don't greatly desire other people's stuff. I think most of us probably understand the term covet and what it means. Don't just really want other people's stuff. Coveting other people's stuff is, you know, this is an issue that we've had since the beginning of time. There are two brothers. Adam and Eve's sons, who one of them coveted the other one because of his relationship with God, and he killed him for it. You know, so coveting is not a new issue. But I will say this, social media has taken covetousness and the temptation to covet to a whole new level, right? Because here's what used to happen before. It used to be that we could only covet the things that we could see around us, right? So if the neighbor, like our physical neighbor, if they got a new boat, we could see their boat and be like, oh man, I really want that boat, you know? Or if they pulled in with a new RV, and I don't know what it is about RVs, but man, you just, once you get one, it's like you got to have, you know, the more feet, the better, right? So, oh, they get 14 foot, I only got 12 foot, man, I want their RV, you know? And so it used to be that that was the case, but now, not only do we see the people around us, friends, family, neighbors, but we see everybody's stuff. Right? We get to see stuff from people that live in states away. We get to see stuff from influencers and people we've never met from all over the world. And we have this toxic, we, we get this, this, this toxic temptation to compare our lives to theirs and see the lack of ours, right? Because we see their extravagant vacations. We see their perfect kids. We see their perfect husband who gets their wife perfect flowers every single day. And we make those comparisons in our lives and it makes us feel 
Like, we're lacking, right? We look at them and we're like, what? Why can't, why can't, where's, where are they getting all the money? Why can't I go on the, the perfect vacation? Um, why, can't, why, can't I, why can't my husband bring me flowers every single day? Devin, don't get any ideas. When, and here's the thing, it usually, like, it is most toxic, and it's most crazy when we're comparing, which is kind of a form of covetousness, when we're comparing, and jealousy, you know, jealousy, covetousness, comparison, they all kind of hang out together because they're all friends. So, but what happens, like, the most toxic form of this is when we're, when we're engaging in this, like, we might get angry and wish harm, right? I hope she's allergic to those flowers, you know? <laughs> We see someone going out for a really nice steak dinner, and we don't have money for a steak dinner that week, and we're like, I hope they choke on their steak, you know? And that's pretty extreme, right? And we, we, we probably would never say that, but it might go through our minds. I don't know. But, you know, that's his most extreme form. But, you know, usually what happens is we're just, we're, we compare our lives to theirs, and we're left just feeling inadequate, and we're, in, we're left feeling discontent, and we're left feeling entitled, like we don't have enough, and then we start to complain to God, why don't we have what they have? Why do they get to do those things, and I don't get to do those things? But, but when it comes to relationships, there's a couple things I want to know. Number one, really, in reality, their lives aren't really that much better than yours, most likely. Um, because we're comparing our behind-the-scenes to their highlight reels, right? We're comparing everything we know about our lives to the best of their lives. And I want to give you a quick example of this. Go ahead and throw that picture up on the, the screen if you would. So here we have a nice picture. Um, my family and I were at a conference in Florida and we were able to take a day, a couple days on the other side of the conference and we were able to stay in Florida and uh, we were able to go to Anna Maria Island. So it just looks like a beautiful picture of us just enjoying our vacation, right? Which we did. So um, let me give you a little background though to this picture and what happened before this picture was taken. Uh, that day we went to the beach. My kids had never seen the, the ocean, never been to the beach. It was really a great day, um, but it was very hot. It was Florida in the middle of August, and so you can imagine, you know, it didn't take us very long to, to get a little bit wore out. And so in the middle of the afternoon, we just said, hey, let's go back to the hotel. Let's cool down, rest up a little bit. We'll get showered, and we'll go out for dinner. And uh, so we decided to do that. We all hopped in the van, and then I think I made the comment in the van. I was like, you guys, if you have never seen the sunset on the ocean you haven't lived. You've got to see it as something to behold, right? And so my kids were like, yeah, 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 yeah. And everybody's really on board with it. So we got back to the hotel. We got all showered. We got all ready to go. We got all cooled down. Well, we, we had a restaurant in mind that we wanted to go to. It was a sit-down restaurant. And uh, we went to the restaurant, but we started to understand. Well, we got to the restaurant. It was a 45-minute uh, wait. And uh, we started kind of doing the mental math in our heads about when the sun sets and how much time we had at that point. And uh, I think we realized pretty quickly, or at least my wife realized quickly, we're not going to have enough time to do this, um, to which I was like, I, I had my mind set on that restaurant, because you know what it is, guy, when you start thinking about food, and you're like, I, that's where I'm going to live, right? So I had my mindset there, my wife was giving me the reality of the situation, and, and conflict ensued, right? And there were, we were not very happy campers, either one of us, we were, we were arguing about what we were going to do. So finally, I gave in and said, okay, fine, let's go somewhere else. Um, let, let's just, let, let's go somewhere quick, and then we'll go out to there. Well, so then it, then it becomes, where do you want to eat? Okay, anybody ever been stuck in that one before? <laughs> Especially when you got three other voices in the back seat telling you where they want to eat. So we made a decision, and the decision that we made was popular with like two of us. Three of us were not so happy. Um, especially since there was no chicken strip kids meals there, and I was like, Devin, get it over it. Not every place has chicken strip kids meals. <laughs> it wasn't Devin. So we go there, and, and we go there, and we're gonna. I'm like, let's sit down and eat. Well, I mean, again, my wife 
The detail person is like, we're not going to have time to do that. We need to get this and go. So once again, I am grumpy about that. My, half my kids, remember, are grumpy because they don't want to be eating there in the first place. So they're already mad about not wanting to eat there. So then we get our food, we get it to go, and we get out there. And not only are we not happy, but by this time, I mean, it's like 9 o'clock at night in the middle of the summer. You know, the, the sun stays out late. And we haven't eaten anything. We've been at the beach all day. We're hungry, right? So blood sugar starts to come into play too, right? So we, we get out there and... Um, we get out there, and we get our food, and we just jump out of the van. We had to jump out of the van because we were just about to miss the sunset. And we get out there, and then we all get together, even though everybody's angry at each other, and everybody smiles and takes this nice picture. <laughs> and it becomes our screensaver on our computer, you know? And everybody comments online, oh, what a beautiful family. Oh, it looks like you guys had a great time. Oh, look at that vacation. When all the time, they don't know the whole story behind it. And I'm happy to say that once we got food and blood sugars calmed down, uh, we had a great night for the rest of the night. But those are the kinds of things we see. We see these things on social media. We start comparing our lives to them, and we start realizing that our lives don't add up to this, you know, this, this fake picture that we see on social media, right? That's why God tells us not to covet. The grass isn't always greener. The, pro- the flowers that she has, she probably bought for herself. <laughs> They went into a ton of debt for that perfect vacation. Their kids are just as unruly as yours, right? So don't covet because you don't, sometimes you don't even know what you're coveting, right? You're just coveting something that's a dream, something that's not even tangible. What's the solution for this? To laud. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. In this verse, he says to rejoice with those who rejoice. The word laud, laud, the word laud means to praise someone for their, uh, for their accomplishments, for their achievements, especially in front of others. That's what laud means, okay? So when you get to whose child is this, and the one time a year you hear that word, you'll know what it means from now on. It's in whose child is this at Christmas? What? What child? What did I say? Whose child is this? It's God's child. Thank you, Pastor Bray. Thanks for humbling me. Appreciate it. So to laud people, to celebrate with people, to celebrate their achievements, to say, to say when they pull in with that new boat, oh man, they deserve a new boat. I'm so glad they got a new boat. God, thank you for giving them and blessing them with a new boat. Taking a totally different attitude, instead of saying, why don't I have, let's celebrate what God's doing in their life that's good. You know, they have great kids, their kids achieve something awesome. Let's applaud that, you know, and not just applaud them in the comments and then angrily in our hearts you know, be angry at them. But let's really, with our whole hearts, rejoice with what they're doing and loud, laud, I should stop saying that word, laud what God's doing in their lives. Taking that attitude of celebration is going to leave us with more content and more joy. It's not going to leave us with discontentment. It's not going to leave us feeling less than or like we're in a lack. But letting us enjoy those relationships and not getting jealous of someone else's success, but applauding their success because there's plenty to go around and God's good to all of us. And so um, if we start looking at our own lives and being thankful for the things that God's given us, we realize really quick that they're not the only ones who are blessed. We're blessed as well. So taking that kind of an, an idea and that kind of an attitude. Well, this morning, just kind of in conclusion, I don't have a lot left today, but um, this idea, this, this thing of being in relationship is incredibly rewarding, but yet incredibly hard. But at the end of the day, it's really how we're created. We don't have a choice other than to live with other people and in relationship with other people. Why are these relational principles that I gave you from the Ten Commandments so effective? They're so effective for this reason. 
Because when God was giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, not only was he giving him laws to live by, but he was revealing his character to Moses. So when God tells Moses to tell the people, don't murder, what's God really saying about who he is? He's saying, I'm a life giver. I'm not a life taker. When God says, don't commit adultery, what is God really saying? God's saying, I'm faithful. When God says, don't steal, what is God really saying? He's saying, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a giver. I'm generous. I'm not a taker. When God says, don't lie, what is he saying? He's saying, I am the truth. I don't lie. And so when we implement these principles in our life, not only are they great principles to live by, not only are they great practices to put into, put into practice, but they're also, every time we identify with these principles, we're identifying with the very character and nature of God. We're reflecting God to the world and to each other when we do these things. And the opposite, if we're, if we're doing the opposite of these things that we talked about, we're reflecting the nature of the evil one aren't we? And we're letting his discord get into our relationships. And so this morning, those four things that we talked about, R-E-A-L, respect, attach, energize, laud. I want you to really give some time this week to think about those things and how are you, how are you implementing those ideas into your relationships this week? Because I guarantee you, if you implement these relationships, these practices rather, into your relationships, you're going to have some incredibly fulfilling relationships. Amen? All right, let's pray today. Father God, I want to thank you for each and every individual in this place. God, thank you for 44 brand new partners that came and said yes today. God, we rejoice for you because, Lord, as we look around, Father, we see faces. God, and even more than that, we know stories of where they've been and what's brought them here and how your grace has affected them. And, Lord, we praise you for that because it's not by our power and it's not by our strength and it's not by the great things this church has done. It's by you, Lord, drawing these people to this place that they said yes, and that you brought them on board to partner with us to reach the kingdom for you. Father, I thank you for those relationships, those brand new friendships, God, that we made this morning. And Father, I pray for the relationships that all of us have in our life. I thank you, God, for giving us people to interact with, Lord, for our health and for our well-being. Lord, to make our lives richer and our experiences here greater. Father, I pray that you would help us to be the best friend, to be the best parent, to be the best husband, wife, child that we can be in relationship so that, Lord, people would want to spend time with us because we're giving them life because we spent time with you. Fathers, we go from this place today. I pray, Jesus, that your anointing would be on each and every one of us. And, God, that you'd go with us. And, Lord, that you'd help us to reach those who don't know you. God, to bring them into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.